Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Ian D'Agata, the scientific advisor for Vinitaly, also the author of The Native Wine Grapes of Italy, and also a writer for Venice and Decanter. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much. So you have a, a really distinguished career in terms of writing and researching Italian wine, both at the on the ground in the vineyard level, but also at the DNA level and looking at it from a scientific bent and then looking at it from a, a tasting angle, which is a combination that's not true of a lot of people, like that whole sweep there. So how did you get started with Italian wine in general? You know, even though I'm a wine writer today, I'm essentially a wine geek and a wine lover. And just like everybody else, I like to get together with my friends and taste wines. And when I was much, much younger and still in university, living in Rome, uh, one of the big things is to go out for weekends to the Castelli right nearby. The Castelli famous for a white wine, the Castelli Romani or Frascati or Velletri. And what I started noticing was that I changed tavern or, or restaurant every weekend. And uh, the house wine was remarkably bad or remarkably good, <laughs> depending on where I went. And like everybody else, I just thought it was, you know, the producer who, you know, didn't know what he was doing or who was particularly good at his craft. And then one day, a talkative um, restaurant owner saw that we were interested. We were like 19 or 20 at the time. And he thought it was cool that some youngsters were into wine. And he said, you know, the reason why this wine's so good is because the producer uses grapes that nobody has anymore. And that was a really novel concept back in the in the 80s. And uh, we didn't know what he meant. And he said, well, listen, I'll take you to the vineyard and you'll see for yourselves. He's a super nice guy. I think all he wanted to do was get the hell out of the restaurant. And he left his wife and his daughter to man the stoves. <clears throat> And he took us to this vineyard, which wasn't that far away. And, you know, we didn't need to be experts. We didn't need to be wine writers to see it before our eyes. It was very clear. The vineyards on the right had these grapes that looked one way. The vineyard on the left had these rickety old things that looked completely different. And that started getting my, my brain clicking and really started getting me interested in what different grape varieties can bring to wine. And I feel like you were early into Barolo. You liked it a lot and you got really interested in it. Well, absolutely, because the next step was to start trying different wines. And of course, I tried the great Sangiovese wines of Tuscany, the great Amarone wines of Veneto, the great Southern wines made with Alianico. But really, Barolo and Barbaresco were really a love at first sight. I just love, love Nebbiolo. Still today, perhaps I shouldn't say this, it is my favorite Italian uh, wine. And I just loved it because the wine is so magically perfumed and really is able to 
talk about somewhereness in a glass. You know, Nebbiolo is such a great translator of different terroirs, much like Riesling is, much like Pinot Noir, and has these unique aromas and flavors that just make it a one-of-a-kind wine. And so you've actually spent a lot of time researching the different crews of Barolo and the different zones, subzones of it. So what have you found in general in terms of the communes of Barolo? Well, actually, that's my next book. In fact, I'm writing it with a friend, a young, two youngsters, let's say, who are super great, and they uh, they deserve to have a, a break and, and get themselves known. And with them, we've scoured the vineyards, and we've talked to a lot of producers. And the first thing that people need to keep in mind is when it comes to Barolo, uh, there's uh, something like nine different geological units. So in reality, it's a very complex area. But you can simplify that and reduce everything to two main areas, that were created in different geological moments. And basically, there's a dividing line that goes through really the town of uh, Barolo or close to it. And all the all the soils on the left, or if we will, on the western side of this diagonal line are earlier maturing, faster to appreciate, early appeal Barolos, which is a relative term with Barolo, right? Because, I mean, you still need about five to eight years after the vintage for it to be uh, at an optimal drinking phase. And all the soils on the right, or the eastern side of the diagonal line, are characterized by much more compact soils and limestone and chalk. And those Barolos are tough as nails when they're young, and they really need 8, 10, 12 years before they open up fully. And so within those two zones, does it work out that the younger soils and the older soils provide a different kind of wine in general? Yeah, they do. I mean, nobody really understands um, fully the role of minerals and geology in wine, because clearly... If it were that easy, all you need to do is use hydroponics and put a little magnesium, a little manganese, and I should be able to repeat more Roche. It doesn't work that way. But what we do know is that the blue-gray marls of the uh, western side of Barolo on soils that we call Tortonian are, are much faster maturing. They're earlier in their appeal. These are still very long-lived wines. I mean, the wines from the 60s and 50s are still good today if you've had the good luck of uh, having a good cellar. The, on the eastern side, these Cerevelian soils which contain limestone and compacted sands, give really tough tannins that really require a long time to uh, resolve. But the wines are beautiful, and they really evolve gracefully. So you have different towns, much like in Bordeaux and Burgundy, where you know that a Musigny in Burgundy will be different from a Corton, and much like a saint Estef will be different from a Poyac and from a Saint-Julien. It's this Emargo, of course. It's the same thing in Barolo. You know, you've got the communes of La Morra and Barolo that give you finer, more graceful wines, if you will, the Musignys or the Volnays or the Margots. And on the other side, the um, eastern side, we have places like Serralunga and Monforte, and those are more like the Poyacs, the saint Estefs, or the Cortons. So maybe we should start with the Barolo, commune of Barolo, because the dividing line really goes through that. So Absolutely. that seems like that would be an interesting... Barolo is actually mainly characterized by, by more graceful Barolos. In fact, the, the most famous vineyard there, Canubi, some people believe the name comes from the word conubio, which means a togetherness or a mixture of, and that is where people thought the Tortonian and the Cerevelian soils met. Therefore, all the vineyards growing there have the blessing of two different worlds. Now, in reality, we know that's not really true. It's the history and the lore and the myth of the place you know, Canubi is one of the very few vineyards in Italy that has been recognized as a great quality site, a true Grand Cru, already in 1752. And we're very unlike France, of course, because Italy it was never a nation. Italy only became a nation, a country in 1861. So we don't have the benefit that France has had of kings and emperors 
and therefore crew classifications that were created over time. But Kanubi has been recognized as a major quality site already in 1752. And so, therefore, it was logical to think that this great site had something special, like perhaps a meeting of the different soils. That's probably not true. It's mainly all Tortonian, so it's an early maturing Barolo. If there is one area of Barolo that probably does sit at the meeting place, if we could say, it would be the town of Castiglione Felletto. We say that those Barolos are the most balanced. But clearly, Barolo of Barolo, I agree, I would start there because there's many different sites, not just Canubi. And I think of Sermassa. Sermassa is the other grand crew of Barolo. Gives much bigger, fatter wines than Canubi. There's a lot more clay in the soils. Canubi is mainly sandy, depending on which part of Canubi you look at. Now, Canubi is the one that everybody knows. In reality, Canubi can be divided into many different Canubis. There's the northeastern part, which is Canubi Boscus, made very famous by one producer in particular, uh, used to be called Mungisolfo. So if you find some old bottles from the early 80s, you'll see Canubi Mungisolfo, which is unpronounceable. They probably did a good thing to change it to Boscus. Boscus was the name of a local family. And, uh, and there's lots of producers now making a Canobie Boscus. Now, Canobie Boscus has much clay-rich soils as opposed to the central part of Canubi, which is very sandy. As much as 40% of the soil, anywhere from 25 to 40% will be sand in the central part of Canubi. So that tells you a couple of things. It tells you that the Canubie centrale wines, the central Canubie wines, are going to be very graceful, very sleek, very elegant, much like Margot. They really are the Margots of Barolo. Well, Canobie Boscus, with its rich clay, is going to be much more chunky, like St. Estef. More importantly, Canubi Centrale wines are especially good in rainy years and poor years because, of course, with that sand, the drainage allows, uh, in fact, Canubi is not so hot in, uh, in the dry years, while Canubi Boscus is because of its clay and its water-retentive capacity. Sermassa, which is nearby, is actually more like Canubi Boscus. It is not all good. The Brico Sermassa area, of course, is the best, but certainly Sermassa, maybe the most powerful of Barolos, and it is a little bit more like Canubi Boscus. The rest of Canubi, it then moves into Canubi San Lorenzo and Canubi Valletta. To the best of my knowledge, there's nobody labeling their wine Canubi Valletta just now. And finally, Canubi Muscatel, which um, is right next to the city, the town of Barolo. It's right there. And that's another clay-rich site. And up until now, there were only two producers that had a majority of Nebbiolo vines there. Only one person bottling. And I can give you a scoop. Uh, that estate has now been bought by the other one. So we now have a monopole of Canobie Muscatel, and, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if they decide to come out with a monopole Clos de Tarte or Clos de Lambre uh, sort of wine. But it's interesting because even the original, well, even what's referred to as Canubi Canubi, that seems to undulate some and have different exposure. It seems like a little bowl. That's, I know you're absolutely right. That's a great observation. In fact, one estate that has uh, three different vineyards, really literally a 30-second walk, one from the other, are completely different wines. What they do is they vinify those grapes separately. And it's truly amazing how wine made literally 30 seconds apart from another can be so radically different. It does. It's all a matter of exposure and altitude. You know, every 100 meters you go up, there's about a degree less in temperature. The exposure is all important in uh, in Barolo because historically a cold area, so you wanted full southern exposure. In fact, all these great crews we are talking about essentially have their fame developed over the years because of the fact that they were warmer microclimates and they were the areas where you could see the snow would melt first in the winter. That's how the Barolo local Barolo producers recognized a really great site uh, because they looked at when the snow would first melt. 
and they would all go and get the grapes there because they knew they would be riper. This is at a time when climate change was not really uh, a problem and people needed these grapes to ripen. Today it's very different. People are starting to think plant with northern exposures, which was unheard of years ago. And at the same time, Kanubi was always known for a certain kind of elegance and grace along with that concentration, right? Absolutely true. And that's still very true. And all the wine lovers, I really recommend that they buy themselves a bottle of Kanubi Boscus from any producer, as many valid ones, and then a bottle of Kanubi, provided they, they know where the grapes in, in Kanubi come from. Because unfortunately, the law allows uh, Kanubi to be used by everybody who has grapes somewhere in Kanubi. That means that you could actually have grapes only in Kanubi Boscus and still label your wine Kanubi. So sometimes you buy a Kanubi and you don't know where it comes from. But if you buy a Kanubi that is really made in the central part and you compare it to a Kanubi Boscus or a Kanubi San Lorenzo or a Kanubi Muscatel, it's, it's immediately obvious how different the two wines are. Certainly the Centrale wines, the central Kanubi ones are more graceful. The other ones are more structured. It's not really a matter of one being better than the other. It's more a matter of individual tastes. You know, some people like Monet, some people like Jackson Pollock, some people like Tintoretto, some people like Renoir. And it's really a matter of what you like best. But do you think that that sand and the Kanubi Kanubi really influenced that elegance that we refer to? As? I think it does. I think it does. I mean, do I have a proof? Can I tell you? It's something I'm working on right now, actually, trying to figure this out. And it's hard. It's hard to say. But it can't be a coincidence that every wine in the world made on a sandy soil has a certain characteristic. And it can't be that every every wine made in another type of soil has another characteristic. Think of the volcanic wines, right? I mean, the wines of Pantelleria. Now, granted, it's an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. It's very hot. But those are very powerful wines. All right, let's look up north. If you think of places like Forst uh, in the Pfalz in, in Germany, the Jesuitengarten, the Kirchenstuck, the Ungeheuer, which are great vineyards, you know, some of these are basalt-rich, of very high potassium levels in the soil, and the grapes really ripen. The wines are very powerful. Some of the reasons for the Faltz area are some of the most powerful of all of Germany. Uh, yesterday, we did a wonderful uh, vertical of, of Rangen the Than with Zin Humbrecht, and that's a volcanic soil, and the Rangen gives some of the most powerful wines in all of us last. So why is that? Why is it that sandy soils give you more graceful wine? Hard to into scientific terms. But it just can't be a coincidence that it's always like that. And uh, it's true of sandy soils, it's true of volcanic soils, it's true of gravel soils that are seen to be more mineral than those that are grown on clay. So that being said, what's the attribute of Valletta? I mean, I know no one's labeling it that yeah, way, but yeah. I mean, as a crew, what's it like? The, the problem with Valletta is that we don't have much to go on because historically there haven't been that many Valletta wines made. There are a couple of producers that have a lot of their grapes in Valletta. And they don't uh, label it as such. The best way I look at it is with a broad stroke, in between the wines of the Centrale part and the wines of Canubi Muscatel, not Boscus. And let me explain that. Boscus gives the chunkiest, biggest, most structured wines of all Canubi wines. Muscatel, even though it's a clay-rich site, um, lower-lying, and the wines have a softer, tactile mouthfeel. So... They're a little bit earlier maturing. They're structured more so than the Canubi Centrale wines, but have a very soft sort of mouthfeel. Valletta is in between Centrale and Muscatel, whereby it has a soft, round mouthfeel, but has a little bit more grace, I think, in the wines of Muscatel. It's just a matter of what you like. Personally, I love um, I love a good Poyac, so uh, it doesn't have to be Margot. If I've got a good Poyac, it's fine by me too. And Valletta, there is a couple of producers who could bottle their wines Valletta, you know, they don't want to do that because Canubi is so important. I guess, you know, if you're allowed to label your wine as Mourache, why label it Batar or Chevalier? As good as those are, and I love a good Chevalier. 
So I know that Kanubi was the first named vineyard in the area, and it, it was always famous. But has what we consider under the umbrella of Kanubi, has that always been planted to vine, or was there a period of time where some of that was forest? Or That's a very good question. Uh, certainly one part of Kanubi was long planted the Muscat vines, and you can figure out which one it was just by the name, Kanubi Muscatel, was so-called because there was a lot of muscat planted there. Now, that's not a slight because you need to remember that back in in the old days, and by the old days, I mean hundreds of years ago, muscat, white muscat wines were extremely highly thought of and were, in fact, much more expensive than the reds. So to plant muscat anywhere means that the site was obviously a very good one. That's why I always I always point out to people who start saying, well, Canopy Muscatel may not be quite at the level... That can't be, because people were planting muscat there, so they must have thought highly of it. The other example I can give you on this note is Montalcino with Brunello. Everybody talks about Brunello and Montalcino today. It's a you know a much sought-after wine. It's a keeper, ages forever. But what you need to realize is that for the longest time, the most famous wine of Montalcino was actually not Brunello, but it was the white sweet wine called Moscadello di Montalcino, Again, a wine made with white muscat. So white muscat's always been very important in Italy. And the fact that in Muscatel, in the Canubi portion, Muscatel, they had muscat planted there, that tells you it was it was very, very famous. No, Canubi has been pretty well always uh, planted the vines. Boscus is a more recent discovery, shall we say. There are other vineyards in the Barolo area that are actually quite famous now that were once more forested than they are today. Clearly, with the economic importance of Barolo, Everybody's tried to plant in the Biolo everywhere, sometimes, unfortunately, even in sites that may not be the best for it. So that ridge of Kanubi sort of breaks with the town, yep. and then it goes back up, and where it goes back up is Piagallo and Turlo, right? Okay. Those are, those are much, as you go south, the area becomes characterized by much tougher soils, more compacted soils, and the wines become harder, tougher when they're young, the... Um, Tannins are really mouth coating, and they require a lot of a lot of time. Now, I hate to talk about crew quality because you know to do a true zonation uh, would require years, and it's a life's work. You'd have to taste wines for about fifty years. You'd have to find, make sure that you tasted them from producers who work more exactly in the same way. Because clearly, if one guy's got vineyards in Terlo and he's macerating six days and and using barriques that are brand new, and the other guy's got vineyards in Terlo right next door but he's macerating over 35 days in big oak barrels that have been cleaned in ages. It's just too hard. How can you say, Terlo? It's very, very hard. So that's why I say it's literally something that would take 60, 50 years to do. But having said that, there is no doubt that there is a general quality to the wines uh, as you move south of the town of Barolo and into the area of Novello, which is the next commune. There are 11 communes that can make Barolo. And just like we have, like I said, St. Estef and Poyac and Margot in in Barolo, it's the same thing. So Novello is one of these 11. Now, the soils of Novello are actually very, very compact and tough, and they're actually Cerevalian in origin, even though they're sitting right beside the Tortonian soils of Barolo. That's because when the geologic formations happened, they didn't just move straight down, but they moved in a in a circular or clockwise fashion, actually counterclockwise fashion. And uh, Novello, therefore, and therefore the, the, the Barolo communes right above Novello area, are characterized by very tough tannins. And where it is less interesting compared to, for example, to the wines of Monforte and Serralunga, tannins are, are really rigid, and uh, the wines usually don't have quite the depth of flavor as, for example, the best of Monforte and Serralunga, other highly compacted Cerevalian soils. I mean, I love a good Terlo, don't get me wrong, but probably I'd, I'd go for a good Canubi or a good Sermassa first. 
You mentioned Novello, and that's an area where a lot of producers in more recent years have moved into to Absolutely. plant. And so it seems like a, an area where every time I turn around, someone has a bottling from Novello. So yeah. what should I understand about Novello as a place? That's a fantastic question. You get the same thing in Monforte, where everybody now is bottling a Moscone, and, and, and it's another vineyard that's now hot to trot. Uh, no, you know, the main thing is Novello was an area that had never been uh, really thought of as an area for Barolo and for Nebbiolo. Again, because Nebbiolo now sells so well, and it's a great wine. Everybody's planting Nebbiolo left and right. The credit for the discovery of Novello, per se, really goes to Elvio Cogno, one of the great, great names in Barolo. You know, there are some old-timers. Bartolo Mascarello, no longer with us. Giuseppe Rinaldi, still with us. Mauro Mascarello and Aldo Conterno. And and all these people, they've really created the myth of Barolo. And Elvio Cogno, who worked for years in La Morra and uh, made some of the great, great wines of La Morra, moved to Novello because he believed there was an area with huge potential. And he created uh, what was the uh, first major estate there. And he just saw that uh, Novello had potential. And what he saw was, Novello can be a pretty vast area, but there's the central sweet spot, if you will, much like in tennis rackets, that is really can be reduced to the Ravera uh, crew. And the Ravera vineyard is really leaps and bounds ahead of most of the others in, in Novello. There are some other ones that are very good, Bergera and Pizzolle. Um, but Rivera seems to be a very high quality site where the wines have a little bit more depth and a little bit more complexity than other areas of Novello where the wines tend to be more linear. And speaking of sweet spots, there is a central portion to the central portion, which is Rivera, a central part of the Rivera vineyard, which is called Bricco Pernice. It's a higher spot. Pernice means partridge. I guess there must have been partridges flying around there in the old days. That gives an even more uh, deep and complex wine. And, and that's when you see that Novello has every right to be considered, along with Serralunga and La Morra and Barolo, as one of the great Barolo communes. And are the exposures and wind patterns different in Novello than in Barolo? That's a fantastic question, and they are. In fact, you've got to consider that that's a valley opening from the south. So in other words, when you move in, in that area and you're going from the south to the north, you realize that this valley is very wide at its beginning. And as you move towards Barolo, it becomes thinner and thinner and thinner. So the wind patterns will hit that ample wide area very hard. And that's also where all the hail comes. So uh, it follows that Novello gets hailed upon first. And by the time the winds, the snow, the hail wants to move into Barolo, its energy has, has been wasted. And so uh, Barolo is saved that way because everybody else is getting the brunt of it first. And back on the other side of Barolo from Novello is La Mora, and they share a vineyard called Brunate, which is a famous vineyard. Oh, absolutely. I would say that if you ask anybody, Brunate would be considered one of the top five vineyards of all Brunate, for many, the, the best. My, my favorite example is I tried once the wines of a very well-known producer who historically was linked to another vineyard in La Mora, and he finally got his hands on um, on some grapes from the Brunate vineyard from a friend who, who they just made an exchange, right? Uh, he gave him a few more grapes of another vineyard so he could make a few more bottles. The other guy got his Brunate grapes, and he got a chance to make a Brunate Barolo. And when you drink the same Barolo, let's say, from producer X from a vineyard, uh, a good vineyard, uh, what would be maybe a Premier Cru vineyard, shall we say, and the Brunate, it's, it's a night and day. It's revelatory. It's... It's fantastic. And again, you don't need to be a wine expert to appreciate the greatness of wine. That's why wine 
become such a magnet for everybody. Because even though people say, you know, I'm not an expert and I worry, in reality, it's not like that at all. When you get a really great wine in the glass, you right away realize why it's so different than everything else. And that's what happens when you drink Brunate. When you drink a great Brunate, you truly realize you're in the presence of greatness and it's leaps and bounds above all the other Barolos that you might have tried. So Brunate would be one. Lamora is very lucky because they have two other vineyards that are at that level, Cerequio and Rocche dell'Annunziata, which is one of my favorites. But the bottom line is, Brunate is really an amazing place. It's a hot site, and most of it is in La Mora. There is actually a little piece that spills over into Barolo, but it's a little less qualitative. The one in Brunate is actually, like I say, a hot site. It has uh, sandy soils and, and clay, but it's mainly marl with a high percentage of magnesium and manganese. They're visibly blue, these soils. And the wine is a rare combination of power and grace, more powerful than Canubi, less powerful than Sarmassa, but very, very balanced. The wines of Brunate, when they're well-made, have a remarkable balance between power and grace. And in that, they are probably the most unique wines in all of Barolo. That's another vineyard where I feel like elevation plays a key into the style of the finished wine. It makes a huge difference because, like I said, it's a hot site. And if you're lucky enough to have a slightly higher elevation in Brunate, it makes all the difference in the world. Otherwise, in some hot years. And unfortunately, that's one of the big problems with climate change. Some of these great crews we're talking about are now starting to suffer in the warm years. Now, doesn't mean that you have to throw the crew away. It just means you have to change your viticulture. But everything in agriculture takes years. So it's going to be it's gonna be a, a, something that we need to work on over time. Uh, Cerequio, which is right next door to Brunate, and for many people was long even better than Brunate, today has, has, has a few problems because it's so hot there that the gracefulness of Barolo is lost. And, you know, when you talk about Nebbiolo and Pinot Noir, the gracefulness is really part and parcel of its charm and its fame. So if you lose that, you're losing a lot. And the same thing on a completely different part of the Nebbiolo world is in Barbaresco. You see that with a fantastic vineyard called Rabaya. Rabaya is right in the town of Barbaresco. In Barbaresco, like Barolo, we have different communes that account for the wines. In Barbaresco, much smaller area, there's only four. One of them is Barbaresco, generally considered to be the most balanced of all Barbarescos. Okay, so there's a vineyard there called Rabaya. Rabaya is basically a heat trap. It's basically a sun trap. And the grapes really, really ripen. Rabaya, make no mistake about it, has often been, and for a long time, considered sort of uh, the, the De La Tache or the uh, DRC of Barbaresco. So what happens? In very hot years, such as 2003, Rabaya is in real difficulty now, and the wines aren't anything to write home about. I mean, that's maybe a harsh thing to say, but they're disappointing by Rabaya standards. So much so that a vineyard like Monte Stefano which is also in Barbaresco and right next door to Rabaya, but much higher. It can go up as high as 500 meters. And, and, and I'll point out, Monte Stefano was never really considered a Grand Cru vineyard. It's always been a good Premier Cru. Today, the Barbarescos of Monte Stefano are often, I'm not going to say better, but are certainly more enjoyable, especially in the hot years, than anything made in Rabaya. So that's really fantastic and interesting how things change over the centuries. And Rabaya has a bit of red soil, right? Like a little... A little iron oxide. It depends where you go. The lower portions are more reddish than the higher ones. And again, not all of it is as good as it could be. But Rabaya, I mean, I, I, I only thank God if I were lucky enough to have a couple of hectares there. It's a, it's a great parcel. So you mentioned uh, Lamora, and you talked about a certain elegance which can be missing in some of the warmer years and some of the vineyards you talked about. But elegance is something I really associate with another vineyard that you mentioned there, which is Roque de la Nunciata. 
Yeah, Rocca Annunziata, you also have to consider is blessed because it's one of the parcels that has some of the oldest vines in all of Barolo. Some of the vines there are 70 years old, so that really helps. Uh, Rocca Annunziata is one of my favorite vineyards because I think it gives more graceful wines than Brunate, which can be powerful uh, because of that heat that we talked about and because of its exposures. Uh, Rocca Annunziata is really like an amphitheater that really is uh, characterized by seeing the sun at all times of day, morning, afternoon, and and midday. And the wines, I think, are really, for me at least, but this, this is really a matter of subjectivity, for me, the Rocca Annunziata wines, when they're great, they're even more balanced than those of Brunate. And I would say Rocca Annunziata is really, along with Canubi and Brunate, one of my top five vineyards in Barolo. It really very much, what we like to say, uh, an iron fist and a velvet glove, but their wines are really remarkable balance. And uh, again, just like with Brunate, when you get a good Rocche, or more exactly Rocche L'Annunciata, it's really a revelation. And connected to La Mora is Verduno, although those seem a little different. Verduno is a very interesting township. It's, again, another commune that makes Barolo, much like Castiglione Falletto and Barolo and La Morra. And it's uh, like Novello. It's an area nobody really talked about 10 or 15 years ago. What has made Verduno's fame in the past few years is that there is one crew there, one vineyard site, which is very clearly a major, major quality site. It's called Monvigliero. There are other ones, but the Monvigliero site really has, you know, what we call full nobility and would be really in any list of the top 10 or 12 vineyard sites of Barolo should be considered. Monvigliero is unique because for some reason, uh, and again, it goes back to the geology and the exposures, the Barolos in Monvigliero, no matter which producer you, 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 you choose, have an extremely fragrant, at times even pungent nose. There are these aromatics of herbs, of, of really like um, quinine and flowers such as geranium and lavender. Barolo, of course, is famous for the red rose. But really, in Monvigliero, it's more of a it's more of a bouquet. By bouquet, I mean a bouquet of flowers, uh, where you have not just rose, but you have iris, peony, lavender, and it's very unique because you have that in all the wines, no matter how they're made, and you don't really get that in any other major vineyard in Barolo, where always, always it's about roses and violets. But in Monvigliero, you have this very fragrant, almost pungent aroma that's very recognizable. The wines have got very great balance. And there's a, mon- a bunch of different producers obtaining the same result. And then, then that becomes interesting because you really speak of somewhere in a glass. Because it's not because of one guy getting that result. Everybody else gets the same result. And that's the site with a little bit of blue clay in the soil. Absolutely. The Monvigliero site is uh, close to La Morra. So it does look actually bluish from the site. It's different. I'm a little colorblind, so they have to tell me it looks blue. It all looks gray to me, i got to be honest. But... They are faster maturing Barolos. They are uh, maybe not quite as fast as the central Canubi portion. There are some compacted soils there, but Verduno usually are uh, mainly faster maturing Barolos from marley sandy soils, a lot like those of Barolo and La Morra. It's a very exciting area, Verduno. I'd say if you were to ask me what the next hot place for Barolo is, I would say Verduno. I'll give you an example. A very famous producer, Paolo Scavino, makes wines from many different sites. So he's got the Rocca Annunziata, he's got the Canubi, he's got the Fiasco in Castiglione Falletto, and yet nowadays his Monvigliero is often his best wine. So that tells you a lot about the potential of that site. Another area that 
is less talked about but doesn't seem to have the momentum of Verduno. However, it has its own kind of particularities as Carrasco. <laughs> you know, that's you're being kind. <laughs> I think everybody in Barolo will want to build you a mon- monument. Uh, Carrasco is the 11th of the 11 communes. Um, it, it was really um, an add-on. And, uh, you know, you never know what to believe. But there's a lot of people in Barolo who say that Carrasco should not have been included, that it was included as a Barolo township because there was a very famous noble family there that pushed for it. You never know how much of this is true, how much of it is sour grapes, literally. Uh, Carrasco, I'll tell you, and this is not a slight, because I absolutely love the critters, is a world-famous place for snails. <laughs> so if you love if you love uh, snails and you love escargot, it's really the place to go uh, for, in Italy, for sure. Having said that, the wines of Carrasco, there's one main producer uh, that we know of, so we only have his wines to go for. I find them perfectly fine. I like them. And so I think Carrasco has every right to be a Barolo-producing township. Probably not the most deep or the complex or the longest-lived of all Barolos, uh, but perfectly fine. Something about high elevation that we probably should cover that we might not have is that Lamora also has some high elevation sites, and some of them are quite sandy. Lamora, more than any other place in Barolo, has high elevations. The highest elevations of the Barolo area are in Lamora. The only other place that has similarly high elevations uh, would be Trezo in Berberesco. And in fact, those wines are, are fantastic, and I really love them. But places like Serra Denari, Serra Denari is a, a crew in Barolo, actually in La Morra, is a wine made uh, in La Morra. That's, you know, the vineyards sit at 500 meters above sea level, and it's very cold there, and it's very windy. So if you take a walk up there, you realize right away that you're in a totally different area as opposed to warmer places like Sarmassa or... Or, or even Brunate. Now, there, it's a recently rediscovered area. So uh, if we'd had this conversation 10 years ago, we would not have been able to talk about a Serra Denari Barolo because there just wasn't one. If we'd had this conversation five years ago, we would have been able to talk about one Serra Denari Barolo. Now we can talk about a bunch of different. So all we need now is a little time, a little track record for these wines, and then it'll be easier to say what the wines of Serra Denari are. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. These are wines that are characterized by higher total acidities, lower pHs, and have a more sleek uh, mouthfeel. I think the potential is there because I've tasted some very good ones from Barrel, but I would be really you know, presumptuous to say, yes, Serodinari is like this because nobody knows. I mean, there haven't been enough Serodinaris made to say these are what they're going to be like. So you mentioned how Castiglione Filetto has a certain elegance to it and a combination of soil types as well. How else would you describe that commune? The, the best way to describe Castiglione Filetto is as the most balanced of all Barolos. They have the power and the strength of the eastern communes like Monforte and Sierra Lunga, but they have the grace and the finesse of the western ones such as uh, La Morra and Barolo. Castiglione Filetto, and it's not, it's not just a platitude, it, they really are. They really are the most balanced Barolos. You never get a, a Castiglione Filetto wine that is brutally tannic. I, there isn't even a single vineyard I can think that would be associated with that sort of quality. There are quite a few that are graceful. Castellano Filetto, for some reason, uh, maybe because it sits in the middle, it gets forgotten. But the, the vineyards of Castellano Filetto are all important because three in particular, Fiasco, sometimes called Fiasc, Villero, and Rocche, are really among the top ten vineyards in, in all of, uh, of Barolo land. Fiasco, which means flask in English, some people will tell you it's called flask because the shape of the vineyard will remind you of a water or bottle flask. Others say that, in fact, it's because it's a hot site 
And the workers who used to go into the fields and the vineyards and pick grapes used to bring water flasks with them to uh, avoid dehydration. Now, again, this goes back to what we were saying earlier. The great sites of Barolo have always been considered great because they were warm, because they allowed the grapes to ripen. Barolo is colder than heck, and it still is today. I mean, if you go if you go in November or December, I mean, it's brutally cold. And, you know, 10, 20 years ago, um, maybe not 10, but 20 or 30 years ago, it was certainly cold already in September and October. And that's changing now, but it wasn't like that for centuries and centuries. So Fiasco, another warm site, very, very chewy Barolos, tactile, rich, uh, fleshy, I would say, lovely Barolos. And then you get into Villero and Roque. The most balanced of all these wines are probably those of Roque. Roque is really one, I said top 10, possibly even top five for many experts, of all Barolo vineyards. Villero is already a bit more uh, a bit more on the powerful side, depending on which part of Villero you're in. But those three also, Piasco, Villero, and, and Roque, are Barolos that I bank on and that sell her well and that I buy any chance I get. It seems like Roque really varies on that ridge depending on where you are. Totally. Well, Roque is a very is just a very steep, long ridge. It's really a tongue, much like uh, Canubia is. The very top portion is interesting. The uh, the top portions in Barolo land and Barbaresco land are called bricchi, bricco, singular, which that refers to the top of a hill. And so the top part of this vineyard will always give you, although Nebbiolo doesn't particularly like wind, to be perfectly honest, as far as the grape variety, uh, however, it likes the sun. And so the most exposed part of the hill will be its summit, will be the top. And so uh, the bricco of Roque, which is actually a monopole owned by one estate, it's actually even more on the other side in what used to be called Serra, but it's so close to Roque that people have always considered to be part of the same vineyard. And those are remarkably f- smooth wines. They don't have quite the flesh of Fiasco, but they have more minerality and they are more elegant. So I would say Roque is my personal favorite in Castellano Felletto and uh, a good synthesis of the qualities of Fiasco and of Villero. And uh, I should have mentioned Mon Privato also because it's long been associated with a great grower, a great producer, who's done great, great work. In reality, there were two. You know, we talk about the great, great names of Barolo, and a lot of, you know, wine lovers, they know of Bartolo Mascarello, and they know of Giuseppe Rinaldi, and they know of Giacomo Conterno, and, and that's true, and they should know. But, you know, uh, Mauro Mascarello today is really the name most often associated with Mon Privato. But just to, to give credit where credit is due, in reality, there was an older gentleman who was the first to be really associated with Moprivato, and his name was Violante Sobrero. And Sobrero was right up there with the Mascarellos and the Piras and all the great, great, great names of Barolo. And he's no longer with us. He sold his um, he sold his vineyards to Mauro Mascarello, which is great because it's one of those examples of a great vineyard ending up in great hands. So the majesty of those wines continues, and that's very important. So Moprivato, absolutely, a wine of really steely austerity sometimes, but it ages magnificently and very mineral. It's one of the more mineral Barolos in Castellone Falletto, and one that I absolutely love. Absolutely one of my favorite Barolos of all, actually. So if you continue on that road of Roque de Castellone, you end up in Monforte. Yeah, Monforte is one of my favorite uh, places in Barolo because, uh, well, I like them all, so who am I kidding? <laughs> uh, Monforte has some really amazing vineyard sites because they're also remarkably different, you know, and the best example i can give you this difference is between busia and between ginestra and there's some other ones that are that are worthy of course uh, but busia is one of the most graceful barolos 
from Monforte, but it has the Monforte typical tough tannins. So when you drink a Busia, it's remarkably silky, and that is the word I would use for Busia wines, silky or even satiny, but with an underlying, and these really are, if you will, the velvet uh, glove and the and the fist of steel, because you can tell when you have them that they have a certain gracefulness to them, like the Barolos of Barolo, but there's just no comparison to tannins. The texture of those of those things in Barolos from Busia are, are steely in the real sense of that word. Then you move down to Ginestra, which is further south and uh, and east, and the wines are much fleshier, much richer. They're what we would normally associate with a Monforte Barolo, uh, very rich, long-lived, powerful, powerful wines that actually don't have much in the way of grace, but make up for it with so much fleshy charm and power. So is the water table different in Monforte? Because I often see springs and cellars there. You know, that's one producer used to tell me that they have uh, more wealth of water in Monforte than they do in other places, whereas not everybody agrees. But the problem is that Monforte is one of the biggest communes of, of Barolo, much like La Morra. So what is true in like the northeastern corner of, of Monforte is very different than the southwestern. So there are some areas where water tables high up, which is not necessarily a good thing. There are some areas where it's farther down and uh, older vines will therefore go and fish deep. And uh, those that becomes a very interesting situation. But I think mainly with Monforte, uh, it's really the, the place to look for powerful Barolos without being almost too powerful and mean. I love Saralunga. Saralunga really requires, I think, patience and, and time. Monforte is a little easier to get around, get your get your mind around. Is that because there's more clay? I mean, I noticed there's a brick factory in Monforte, and so for me that means like maybe there's clay there. Definitely more clay, for sure, and less limestone. Saralunga is the one that has the limestone. And so the clay is also one of the reasons why the Monforte barrels are often very good in rainy years. So that's one place I look for, for you know years like 2002, were difficult from the point of view of the rain. There's a lot of very good Moforte Barolos. Uh, also some very good Canubis, as I said earlier. But Moforte really is a good place for that and, and lovely wines. And I think those of the tough and tannic Barolos are probably the ones that are easiest to understand. And then connected to Monforte, but seemingly different, is Perno. Perno, you know, is, is actually an area that has been made famous mainly by one estate, I think those wines are actually falling between the wines of Busia, at least in my experience. They fall in between those of Busia and of Ginestra in that they are readier sooner, a little fleshier, a little softer. I don't think they have quite the staying power of the of the uh, Ginestras, but are lovely wines and they're readier to drink sooner, a little bit more flesh than Busia. I like quite like Perno. It's got a couple of uh, really good sites there too that some producers have made famous. So what about Saralunga? I like Saralunga. You know, right now it's the hottest of all the Barolo communes. But I've always loved it because the wines are characterized by a sleekness, uh, you know, inordinate power. But they're sleek and they're very, very refined. And it sounds like a contradiction in terms. But potentially they're the greatest of all Barolos. Historically, Saralunga has never had uh, great fame as far as single estates or producers because most of the people were grape growers and sold the grapes to the negociants, if you will. And in fact, historically, the grapes of Saralunga were always paid a bit more than uh, most other grapes from most other communes. So, and you know, if you talk to the Pio Boffas of the world or even the Bruno Giacosas, they'll tell you they were always looking out for grapes from Saralunga, not just because of the backbone they provided and the, and the structure, but just because they were great, great grapes. Now things are changing, and a lot of the uh, one-time grape growers 
have now turned to making their own wine. We've got lots of little states. I'm not totally sure, i got to tell you the truth, that the quality level and skill in Sierra Lunga was always as high as maybe the terroir warranted. Uh, I think that's changing mercifully, and we're getting better and better, more accomplished wines coming out. And you're starting to see the great potential that the that the terroir there has. So I think Sierra Lunga, my favorite commune as far as Barolos are concerned, and I think now... It's not just one or two truly stellar, iconic wines, but a lot more coming out. And we're discovering crews that were not really even known ones, like Chiretta and Prepo. And, and I'm really happy. I'm excited. I, I love Saralunga. And what about the difference between East and West in Saralunga? Absolutely. Well, it's a big difference because, you know, really the one side really is very well known. The whole side that has the famous, you know, Vigna Rionda and Margaria and, and Cascina Francia, that, that's very well known. The side that has Chiretta and Prepo has always not been well-known. And in fact, Chiretta Propo um, really have only been, become famous in the last 10 years, if that. Lazzarito was always well-known up there. Um, but uh, not too many people made Lazzarito outside Fontana Fredda and outside of uh, Vietti. So that's a truly great, great crew that I think uh, has gone a little bit under the radar. But I think certainly there is one uh, side of the slope one slope that is very well known and the other that's just being discovered. But again, it's because those grapes used to be sold and only recently are they starting to make bottled wine out of them. But is there a climate change factor going on with Saralunga? I think so. I think I think, I think if there's one concern, Saralunga is becoming a little warm. Um, I think that if you think of the great wines I've had from Barolo in the 70s and the 80s, Saralungas were always routinely the most interesting or or at least uh, very similar in their in their style. Today, I find that a lot of them especially the ones from the highly prized southern part, are becoming very warm and fleshy. And, you know, even Bruno Giacosa at his Faletto estate, he has changed, actually, the parcels he uses in most vintages by which to make his red label, his Reserva. And that that's telling, right? I mean, it used to be that he uh, used the three parcels that were at the top of the hill, the so-called, you know, Brico, or the top part of the hill, the summit, and now, often, uh, you know, he'll fill in a couple of parcels that are on the bottom. And that was never the case. But you have to because of, of climate change. I thought you made some incredible points about Canubi. I was wondering what you thought about vineyards like Rionda and Francia, which are, yeah. you know, a lot of times people think of them as some of the Grand Cru's. Well, they are. I mean, I, I think, you know, hard to say. Vigna Rionda, I think, we have such a, a library of great wines given to us from Bruno Giacosa. It's really hard to argue with the... With the uh, greatness of the crew and we see it also now in other crews as well people like Ruania used to make a Vignerionda as long as until you could get the grapes Pira um, Odero and you know there's a greatness there's a nobility of that wine that never fails Vignerionda is um, it's an interesting um, parcel because the historic historic part of Vignerionda was really the small south southwest facing piece about 20 years ago they added a western facing piece that looks towards Monforte and, you know, usually the wine critics jump all over that and say, oh, the new piece isn't all that good. But in fact, it is. <laughs> in fact, that whole that whole slope, if we will, produces great, great wines. So I guess the question is, is it getting a little too warm there? It's not one of the highest crews. Cascina Francia, you know, it's a monopole. So there's no way of knowing what else it could give because it's just one great guy using it, Roberto Conterno. And it's hard, nothing to argue with what he's done. Um, people forget that Francia, actually, was never as famous as crew as it is today because... Uh, I think they bought it in 74, if I'm not wrong. You probably remember better than I do. And um, it was Giovanni, his, his dad, who bought it. That's, that was at a time in the 70s when some of the vine growers were starting not to sell grapes anymore. 
and there was a concern that people may may lose their source of fruit, so they needed to buy stuff. It's the story of the langa, right? Jacobs had to start buying parcels and so on and so forth. And uh, so Cascina Francia actually is strikes me as being less affected by heat. It may be it may be my impression, but um, considering its southern exposure right at the beginning of the Sierra Lunga strip of cruise, uh, I find that the wines have remained more or less similar over the last 10 years. While Rionda, maybe because of its uh, south-southwestern exposure, heat of the afternoon, maybe it, it, it gets a little bit more heat than uh, than some other crews, certainly more than the Lazzaritos, Cerritas, and Propos on the other side. So I guess there's another couple of communes, but you just don't see them very often, like Diano da Alba and Grinzani Cavour. Yeah, and yeah. How, how should I understand those places? You don't want to offend anybody, and you certainly don't want to take a shot at somebody's work. But I think that, you know, crew systems exist for a reason, and they exist in Germany, they exist in France, and then there's a reason. And I think that on the positive, we might say that we don't know enough about Diano d'Alba and Grinzani Cavour as a source of great, great, great Barolo. Certainly veneers like like Sorano, which is found partly in Diano d'Alba, that, that is shown in the hands of some producers to give possibly great, great wines. I don't think we have enough of a history to say what the exact potential is there. It's a different situation than that in Verduno, where the Monvigliero crew has clearly established itself as an above, uh, way above average crew, probably a grand crew. I don't think we know that yet in the crews of Grinzani, Cavour, Diano d'Alba. But doesn't mean that there might not be a great uh, site in the making or there waiting to be discovered. But so far, you know, Grinzani Cavour, the wines seem to me a little to be a bit, little monolithic, a little rigid, a little uh, like the lesser expressions of Novello, for example. And and Diano, same thing. Diano is uh, is one I'm even less acquainted with because there really aren't that many barrels coming out of that area that uh, have uh, a real somewhereness in the glass type thing going. But I think, you know, we've talked about this now, and it's been a great sort of trip through Barolo, Lamora, and and uh, Barolo, and, and all the other communes. But the fact is, you know, the geology, the exposures, they're so, so complex because, you know, we like to say, for example, as, as I said a little while ago, that Seralunga uh, sits on Helvetian soil or Seravalian soil. Same thing with Grinzana Cavour. But in reality... It's so much more complicated, you know. Um, Seralunga itself probably sits on three different soil formations. There's, like I said at the beginning of our talk here, nine at least. And, you know, there are parts of Seralunga that are soils that are very similar to those of Lamora. And that, that comes as a surprise to most people. And uh, there are some soils that are very similar to those of Castiglione Falletto. And, uh, and there are some that are pure, pure Seralunga with the type that we always associate with Seralunga. So... It may very well be that in Grinzani and Cavour, you have the same mosaic of soils, and they've got you know horribly complex names like St. Agat's Marls and Lequio Formations. And Lequio Formations are those that characterize Seralunga, and those do not seem to be found too much anywhere else. But but who knows? You know, in Grinzani and Cavour and the Alba, there may be these different formations. You combine that with exposure, with the altitude, with a quality producer, and something great may really come out yet. I think, at least in the American audience, there's a lot of people who are getting more knowledge of the crews and, and, and communes of Barolo. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think even 10 years ago, that was less true, except for maybe the commune level. But you didn't see so much knowledge of the crews outside of um, brand names, really. And 
I think that the the maps really helped with that, and the idea that everyone's using the same names now and stuff is helpful yep. too. One of the places where I feel like there's still in the American market less knowledge about the communes differences is in Barbaresco. Absolutely. And I was wondering if you could address the four different communes there. Absolutely. I'd love to. Uh, I'm a huge fan, by the way, of the map work that's been done by Alessandro Masnaghetti. He's come out with a fantastic book called MGA. And uh, it's really, I think, a benchmark book for all those who are interested in Barolo. And I also want to say that, um, uh, considering your, 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 your listeners, are very much into wine, it's not a problem. But, you know, crews and all these vineyard sites, it's not really a matter of geekdom. It's not that we, we may very well be wine geeks, but it really does also add another dimension to the pleasure you derive out of drinking a glass of wine. It's it's a great th- greatness of, of Burgundy, you know. It's really fascinating to see the differences between Chambon, Musigny, and Givray Chambertin, and even better, it's great to go see the differences in the glass between Le Fisselots, Le Baudes, Les Amoureux that are all in Chambord Musigny. And this is the same thing with Barolo. So if we do that for Burgundy, I think we should do that with Barolo. Barolo has finally got its crews in order. At least now we have set limits. We know the grapes come from those areas. We still don't have a quality hierarchy, but I guess that's what we're doing right now. And that's what other people like Galoni and like Masnaghetti have done. Uh, trying to, and Veronelli, even before all of them, uh, no longer with us, but a great Italian wine writer. So I, th- I think it's great, and I think we should know more about these crews. And Barbaresco, if Barbaresco is ever going to get out of the shadow of Barolo, and if it's going to become a really world-class wine, two things have to happen. They have to improve the overall level of the winemaking and the wines. That can be fantastic, but on the average are not as uh, always as well-made as, as in Barolo. And they have to promote their crews more because Barbaresco has a bevy of very high quality, what we call megas, you know, Mencioni, Geografiche, Giuntive, or crews. And uh, four communes, Barbaresco, Neve, Trezo, and San Rocco Sinodelvio. San Rocco Sinodelvio is the smallest of these of these hamlets. Also sometimes just referred to as Alba because it's part of a, it's, it's actually like a periphery of Alba. San Rocco Sinodelvio is... Um, so named, it's a very complicated name, but in reality, there's a stream there that runs by, and Elvio in the name refers to Elvio Publio Pertinace, a Roman emperor who's actually born in a town. So San Rocco Seno Elvio combines the name of a stream and the name of an emperor. I just say that because sometimes people think these Italians and their crazy names, you know, but there's a reason, and, and they're very proud. To just um, give a broad brushstroke, uh, the Barbarescos of Barbaresco, are the most balanced. The Barbarescos of Neve are the biggest and most structured. The Barbarescos of Trezo are by far the most elegant and refined. San Rocco, San Odelvio are faster maturing wines that are more similar to Barbaresco in style. That the San Rocco, San Odelvio wines mature faster is not surprising because being at the periphery of a town, the microclimate is warmer, very much like the wines of Pesac are going to mature earlier or be readier to drink sooner than... Uh, than those up in St. Estef. So, Barbaresco, some of the greatest vineyards in the world, uh, crew sites that can translate what the grapes will give into a glass are Rabaya and Azili. Of course, uh, some very great names make wine there. It's a real, it's an amphitheater that has Rabaya at one end, Azili at the other. In the middle, you've got the Martinenga, which is a monopole. And that's just really a fantastic, beautiful slope some of the greatest Barbarescos are made. To the north and the east of that, we have some other uh, crews like Monte Stefano I mentioned briefly earlier. Monte Stefano is becoming a very good uh, site because it's higher up. 
and because it's much, much fresher, and therefore the wines are uh, becoming more and more interesting. I always like the wines of Rio Sordo. It's a flatter, lower-lying vineyard that gives very round, supple Barbarescos. Maybe not quite the staying power of the Montestefanos, but certainly a fantastic site. Moving over to Neve, for sure, uh, the most famous vineyard site there is Santo Stefano. Would be the equivalent of the Vigna Rionda in Barolo. Santo Stefano gives some very powerful but remarkably elegant wines. It's actually a smaller part of a larger crew called Albizani. And for those who like uh, Bruno Giacosa wines, you can find some wines in the early 70s and now again labeled Albizani. Uh, and it's just a, a great site. It's a very large site, so I suppose there would be variation depending on where you get the grapes. But at least the Albazanis I've tried have always been great. And Santo Stefano is a small part of that and gives really some of the most powerful, most balanced, deepest, fleshiest, and longest-lived wines. But they're very elegant as compared, for example, to the Barbarescos of Galena. Galena is a very nice, well-known uh, site in uh, in Neve, which gives chunkier wines. They're, they're fine. They're perfectly fine. But they have nowhere near the grace and refinement, the breed, if you will, of the wines of Santo Stefano. My personal favorite Barbarescos are, without question, those of Trezo. Trezo is usually considered to be the coolest microclimate in Barbaresco. And you have to be careful there because that's not always true in a sense that there's a part of Trezo that's very high up and it reaches 500 meters, one of the highest sites like Serra Denari in Barolo. We were talking yesterday in the Lamora district of Barolo. And the wines of Trezo are really uh, remarkably fine, light, sleek. They can border on the lean in some years, but when the vintage is a good one, the wines are just magically perfumed. And, and lovely, and you have things like Bricco di Treze, Trezo, and Bernardot are the ones that come to mind. There is another portion, which is sort of the western uh, and lower-lying portion of Trezo, which actually gives very full-bodied wines, not too different from those of Neve and Barbaresco. For example, where you have the Rombone vineyard, if you drink a Rombone vineyard blind, you'd probably have a hard time picking it up as a, as, as a Trezo wine. A lot of the Trezo vineyards are also very steep and uh, very windswept. And uh, I think that they're some of the, uh, you know, toughest when young, Barbarescos uh, or even Barolos. But as they blossom, they're, they're, they're fantastic. Last but not least, in Trezo, there is one of my all-time favorite uh, vineyards of all Barolo and Barbaresco, and it's Paiore. Paiore, which uh, mainly associated now with Sottimano's uh, wines, but for many, many years, we're associated with a producer called Giovannino Moresco, and his estate was bought up by Gaia. And in fact, uh, most people don't realize that most of the grapes that go into Gaia's uh, Barbaresco are actually from that, it's from that portion that he bought, and therefore are Trezo grapes. Um, absolutely love Paiore because it combines the best of both Trezo worlds. Has the power of Rombone, but has the breed and elegance of Bernardot and, uh, and Brico di Trezo. And I think that if you can find a good Paiore, you've probably got, you know, if not the best, the second best uh, Barbaresco you possibly could have from any site there. So that's my take on Barbaresco. I think it deserves to be better known. Barbaresco wines, of course, are going to be a little bit readier uh, than the Barolos. This isn't just because they've got less one less uh, year in oak. They age one, one year less in oak than Barolo does. But the hills are gentler, they're softer, they're lower lying, the microclimate's warmer. And if you look at the map, you see right away that Barbaresco is much closer to the Tanaro River than Barolo. And so the effect of the river with its thermal regulating capacity is also much more felt than Barbaresco. So they're sooner uh, maturing, earlier to like, uh, plenty of early appeal wines that I, I just never get tired of. But I think Barbaresco has to do more to have people understand the differences 
between Montestefano and Ovello and and all these crews because the crews are there they're just as good and just as famous as the ones in Barolo but I need to broadcast them more you know I'm still trying to understand Trezo because uh it seems like something's different <laughs> I mean I understand the elevation yeah. part and I understand mm-hmm. what you mean that it really encompasses kind of two elevations and so it's hard to put it together as a coming but like when you taste dolcetto from Trezo Tastes like something different. <laughs> well, actually, no, that's a really good point, and that's a really fantastic point. <laughs> I love talking to you because you come up with these observations that are really, you're an honorary Piedmontese citizen, I think. Dolcetto from Trezo is actually very famous. Like the Berbera of Neve is actually very famous. Actually, Neve is famous for its Muscat, too. And, you know, we all get carried away with the Nebbiolo wines, and we should because they're marvelous, but we tend to forget that some other grapes have a long and distinguished history in these areas. And uh, and Trezo's Dolcetto is remarkably fragrant and perfumed. Now, a lot of it, again, might go back to the talent of the individual producer. And I think, really, um, I love Barbaresco, and I love its people. I think, though, that, you know, uh, sometimes the winemaking scale isn't quite on, on a par with that of Barolo. If you have 50 Barolos, very hard to find one that's prematurely oxidized or or poorly made. I'm not sure I can say that about 50 Barbarescos, although, you know, the vast majority are going to be great. That's not always the case. So when it comes to Trezo, it's a little bit like Grinzana Cavour before. We don't really have as much of a history with the area. With the, we, we know of a couple of communes that were linked, like I said, to famous people. But again, the grapes of Trezo were sold. They were sold, and they were sold to you know big blends, uh, to make big blends, and they add backbone acidity. But I'm, I'm not sure we know yet enough about Trezo to generalize. But I agree, the fragrance and the, you know just, just, just the perfume of the wines of Trezo is so unique. It seems very different than what Barbaresco and Neva can come up with. And I know you've done a lot of work kind of chronicling the Alto Piemonte, which is an area that yep. seems to have a lot of different sectors to it that can vary quite a bit, but is often sort of lumped together as one kind of idea, like yep. the Nebbiolo yep. blends right. from the north. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, not to, because obviously it's something that we could talk about for hours, Absolutely. but like if you were to give someone a, a handbook to the Alto okay. Piemonte, what would be important for you? It's actually a tremendously complicated area. I mean, actually, Barolo and Barbaresco are remarkably simple compared to the Alto Piemonte. The new book I'm writing on the expression of of terroirs via single grape varieties, of course, is dedicated in great part to the Alto Piemonte. It's an area I love. The first thing to say about the Alto Piemonte that's key is that in, in a moment of climate change, the Alto Piemonte may very well become the place for Nebbiolo, you know, 50 years from now, it is getting too warm in parts of Barolo and Barbaresco. And so in some vintages, you know, the quality of the wines isn't maybe what you'd expect it to be. Now, this may all be fixed with a different viticulture, of course, and it may very well be, and that's my hope. Certainly, though, Nebbiolo is now ripening in Alto Piemonte, and that was not the case, you know, 20 years ago, and maybe it would ripen three years out of 10. In fact, you know, even though it's it's not not routinely mentioned, a lot of the old wines made in the Alto Piemonte benefited from grapes that came from, you know, farther down south and where they and where they matured. Having said that, there is no question that the Alto Piemonte makes some of Italy's greatest wines. And we know that for a fact, also because of history, there is a huge documentation available of the importance and the cost of the wines of Lissona and Gattinara over the past few centuries, more so actually than the wines of Barolo and Barbaresco, where people mainly refer to Nebbiolo wines rather than Barolo or Barbaresco. 
But Gattinara, for example, um, and the Lissona wines have been often cited in the literature as expensive and sought-after wines. The areas are very, very different. There's a bunch. There's also Boca to keep in mind. There's Bramaterra, Sizzano. Uh, of these, Gemme. Of these, the most uh, potentially great, great, great in my books is Gattinara, uh, where a lot of the wines can also be 100% Nebbiolo. Uh, the, the main difference with this area and Barolo Barbaresco is that in Barolo Barbaresco you have, of course, 100% Nebbiolo wines, while in the Alto Piemonte, up to 15% can be local varieties such as Vespolina and Croatina and Uvarara, which, which of course, changes the makeup of the wine. Vespolina especially is a grape that has a very high rotundone content, so smells a lot of black pepper. And, and it's a grape that uh, people are reevaluating, and now more and more monovariety Vespolina wines are coming up. But if you add it to Nebbiolo, it certainly changes its makeup. It's fine. It's a, it's a very nice blend. But So what you look for there, if you're a Nebbiolo fiend, is for the pure 100% monovariety Nebbiolo wines made. There's an ever-increasing number made. And I think it's just very interesting because if you drink a pure Gattinara, it's very rigid, highly mineral, beautiful wine that uh, doesn't have the flesh of a Barolo Barbaresco, but that will age extremely well. And very, very graceful and classy wines. And... um it's something that I'm going to uh, learn about as I go along and as I write, because the best way to learn about something is to write about it. And um, there were ones I used to drink. My father used to love Gattinara, so always, always had them on my table in my, in my uh, cellar. But now I'm starting to understand better what makes that whole area tick. The, the last area in Alto Piemonte, which is a bit removed, and some people feel should not really be included in the Alto Piemonte area, is Carema. Carema is right below Val d'Aosta, so it is in a different geological area as opposed to the Alto Piemonte. The only thing that I want to mention about Carema, and this is very important, Carema has a special biotype of Nebbiolo called Picotener. Picotener is the uh, French name, uh, the word derives from Picotendre, which is the word that has always been used to describe Nebbiolo in the Val d'Aosta. Val d'Aosta is the smallest region right above Piedmont on the border with France. And uh, what's really fascinating, it's absolutely fascinating about wine and about Nebbiolo in particular, the Picotendre in Carema and the Picotener, you can tell the French origins just by the name alone, the Picotener in Val d'Aosta and in Carema gives a beautifully graceful, powerful always, but graceful, pale red wine that is very typical of Nebbiolo. Now, for some reason, when you take the Picotener clones, uh, clone biotypes from Val d'Aosta and you bring them to Piedmont, as many have done, the thing turns uh, into some sort of Godzilla-type vine that gives you blacker than black, uh, well, very dark, shall we say, uh, red wine that is really not particularly blessed or endowed with, with aromas. So when you take the Pico Tenor biotype from Carema or from uh, Val d'Aosta and you plant it in Barolo, because of the different exposures, the heat, whatever, the light, Pico Tenor gives a very uninteresting Nebbiolo wine. Uh, which is very dark and perfumeless. And in fact, a lot of producers of Barolo have since ripped up their Pico Tenor. These are biotypes that have got basically the 400 series of, uh, of, of Nebbiolo biotypes. So it, it's really fascinating when we talk about these, these areas and we say the Alto Piemonte and we say Barolo and we say Barbaresco. What I want to just stress is that it really is a matter of a specific area, a specific grape, a specific climate, a specific soil. These interactions give a product that is extremely typical of that area. 
And sometimes it's not enough to bring that particular grape to another area to duplicate the result. So what I was saying earlier, you know, people could say, hey, we're a bunch of geeks here talking about sites and specific wines. But in reality, it's not like that at all, because those wines are not particularly replicable, replicable, at least they're not with Nebbiolo. It's different, I guess, if you have Cabernet Sauvignon or Chardonnay. But with Nebbiolo, even, even a change of, you know, 100 kilometers in distance is a night and day to this grape variety. That and tells you a lot why it's so hard to get truly, truly, truly great Nebbiolos outside of Italy. One of the things that's very cool about you is that you followed through that idea of a grape in a place and how they could symbiotically connect and then how they could follow through a whole country. And you didn't just do it as like an idea you had over lunch one day. You did it as like a 13-year research book project that came to be the native wine grapes of Italy. So what are some of the real, I mean, that that's a big book with a lot of different grape varieties in it. So that's a long interview. But what are some of the real connections of grape and place that you found that are maybe some of the less well-known examples along the way? That's a great question. And frankly, <clears throat> I mean, I want to be clear. Everything I know, everything I write about is really the result of many years of interviews and talks with producers who have been kind enough over the years to give me their time, their patience, and their energy. And so all these things I say, I mean, uh, is a summary of what many other people have told me and I really am indebted to all of them. The observation that transporting a grape type from one area to another may not be the panacea that everybody thinks it is really, really came with the with the Pico Tenor example because I'm in Barolo basically once a month. I love the area. When I say Barolo, I also mean Barbaresco. I'm there once a month, sometimes uh, sometimes four times a month. So I'm really countless times. And it just I drink a lot of Barolo. I drink a lot of Barbaresco. And I got to the point where a number of these wines had no perfume, which is insane because that's the greatest thing about Barolo and Barbaresco is this truly amazing, penetratingly beautiful uh, red rose aroma that, that, and you know, to find Barolos and Barbarescos that had not this aroma was was really eye-opening and got me got me thinking, right? Um, and so that's that's when it came out of talking to various producers. They came up with, uh, with these uh, notions that... Uh, the biotype that was planted had a big gap. And so I started thinking about this and talking to other people. I'll give you an example that goes in one direction and another example that goes in the other direction because I'm not saying it's a sine qua non. I'm not saying that you need to have that biotype. But just from an intellectual point of view, if a biotype, if a grapevine has been adapted to a specific area for you know, 400, 500 years, it's probably, probably the right variety for that area. It's a variety that has adapted to the stressors, to the demands of that area. So it just makes sense that that biotype would probably perform best in that area. Uh, very eco-friendly sort of agriculture. Now, what happens when you take that plant and you put it somewhere else with a completely different climate? And, you know, it doesn't, it's like a human being, right? You probably, you know, if you've been used to the, to the heat of the African jungle all your life, and then suddenly you get transported to, to the Arctic, I think even human beings would have a hard time, right? And I think the same thing with the grape variety. So two examples. The first one is Sardinia. If you talk to the Canonau producers of Sardinia, it's fascinating because Canonau is, is a local biotype of Grenache. Uh, they will tell you that the Grenache, the Canonau they have there, is very different from any other. And you can believe that because Sardinia is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. It's not exactly easy to get to. Plus, the interior of Sardinia itself is rocky and you know, fairly inhospitable, and the roads are what they are, and hard to get to. So in Sardinia, we have very little genetic contamination 
that's taken place over the centuries. So the canon of, uh, of Sardinia is very locally adapted and very specific to various sites. And again, this is not this is not of my own doing. Uh, I have to give credit to the people who have made me think about this. Many producers have pointed out that, in fact, the Cannonau they have in their area gives you a completely different wine than the Cannonau in another area, which may be even removed only by 50 kilometers, and that is still by using the same viticultural and winemaking techniques. And this is apparent in the wines. But what's interesting is that when the boom in wine occurred in Italy in the 80s, people started planting their vineyards and replanting their vineyards, and they needed uh, grapevines, and there weren't enough on the island. So what they did is they asked the major nurseries, and the major nurseries gave them pseudo-Cannonau vines. And by that, I mean they gave Cannonau that grew elsewhere, because that's what they had. And in Veneto, you have something called Tokai Rosso, now called Thai, which is a Cannonau. You have an Umbria Gamay Perugino, and that is another Grenache, it's typical of Umbria. And that all got sent to Sardinia. So uh, in the words of people like Alessandro de Torre or, or the Loi family, they will tell you that, you know, as much as 60% of the Cannonau now planted on the island is not really of Sardinian uh, origin. And it is, in fact, of much, much lower quality level. In Sardinia, they're especially mad with the Thai. They think the Veneto biotype is really poor. And again, it may not be that the Veneto biotype is poor. It's just that that poor, shall we say, biotype has had the misfortune of having to adapt to a completely different environment than that which grew in century after century. So that's an example of whereby transporting vines from one area to another may not give a great result. Having said that, in Campania and Basilicata, I can assure you that a lot of people have planted the various biotypes of Alianico. So there's lots of Vulture Alianico now growing in Campania. There's a lot of Tarazi and Taburno Alianico now planted on, 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 on in Basilicata. And I would say that's not a good thing. Having said that, I'm not sure, though, that there is much difference in the wines. And I've tried it many, many times. And unlike with the Pico Tenor thing in, uh, in Barolo and even the Canonau uh, thing in, in Sardinia, I've tried lots of Tarazis, Taburnos, and Vultures, and there i got to tell you, I really can't tell much of a difference. So it may be that what I'm saying doesn't apply to all grapes and all places. In the case of Alianico, I'm not sure that I have any proof yet that there's a difference. So reading your book, it seemed clear to me, or maybe I was reading too much into it, that there are certain grape varieties that have really captured your, you know, you like them all, a great yeah. time, captured your affinity. So one of those in red would have been Ruque. And then in white, it seems like you like Verdicchio and Fiano a great deal. Mm -hmm. And I was curious if you wanted to touch on some of those or other grape varieties. You know, I think uh, it's great to love Nebbiolo, fantastic grape variety, and those wines will age. But you can't just drink Nebbiolo all day long. Rouquet is an aromatic red variety. You either hate them or you or you love them. It's like Gewurz Treminer. You love it or you hate it. Uh, Rouquet is very much like a red muscat, if you will. It's always been thought of as a noble grape. It's a sort of uh, grape that was used to make wines that were pulled out only in the case of important celebrations, like a son coming back from a war or uh, somebody getting married. I love it. It's a unique, uh, unique wine because it will redolent really of uh, cinnamon and nutmeg and rose and violet and uh, obviously ripe red cherry fruit. It will age better than uh, than most people think. It has also notes of quinine. Goes very well with anything uh, involving soy, soy sauce. So. Soy sauce and rouquet are best buddies. So if you like that sort of food, then by all means, rouquet. I, I personally like all the aromatic red grapes. So I love Aleatico, and I love Malvasia di Schirano. Malvasia di Schirano gives an unknown little red wine called Malvasia di Castelnuovo Don Bosco. Again, a hard-to-pronounce name, but it's worth knowing because 
These are very light um, wines, often fizzy, uh, the ones made with the Smalvasiri Schierano, that are light and fizzy and red and sweet, and they're a lot like fruit cocktails with a little bit of alcohol. They've got about 6%, and they're just joy, 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 joy to drink. Verdicchio and Fiano are a different story because unlike Rouquet and the Malvasiri Schierano grape varieties, they are major grape varieties, Verdicchio and Fiano are, and they give major, major wines. Along with Garganaga and Carricante and the authentic Trebbiano Abruzzese, these are probably at least five best grape varieties. Uh, Verdicchio can be great when it's made from you know low yields and by a competent producer. Fiano is a great period. I mean, <laughs> uh, unless it grows in a very warm place where it picks up diesel sort of notes and, and smoked rubbery notes very quickly early on in life. Oh, is that from the warmth? Nobody knows. Nobody, that's a very good question. Nobody knows. But certainly if you drink a Fiano from the Sumonte area, uh, and here we go talking about sites and crews again, uh, the Fiano di Avellino area can be divided in at least four subsections. And the warmest is the Sumonte area. And there the Fianos always seem to be a bit more diesel-y and a bit more smoky and a bit more ripe. Other people say it's not really the territory, but it's the way they press the grapes. Maybe they get carried away. Mm, that may be true, but then I fail to see why every single wine in that area has the smoky note. It can't be that every single producer is working the same way. But Fiano is, uh, is a great, great, great variety. And when I talk about native grapes, I always stress that this is why we want to save them. Because people will tell you, well, you know, why bother? Not all the native grapes are good. They're not all going to give great wines. And that may be true. But unless we study them, then we'll never know that for a fact. Fiano, uh, back in the 50s, was virtually extinct. In the 60s, it was still in dire trouble. And in 1978, the appellation of Fiano di Avellino, which is the most famous of all the Fiano wines, was down to four hectares. Four hectares. This is a wine that's found everywhere in Italy and the world now. Everybody recognizes it to be a fantastic grape variety. It's being planted from California to Australia. And yet this was a grape that had its hectares reduced to four hectares or less only, only 25 years ago. So that's what we risk losing if we abandon our grapes. Now, besides the fact that I think biodiversity is a good thing and we should help it, uh, I was very saddened, for example, the other day I read that there's only 50 snow leopards left in the wild. Now, I'm the first person to say that I have no happiness or willingness or intention of ever meeting a snow leopard in the wild. But I'm personally, I'm very happy that he's out there. <laughs> and I'm, I feel better knowing that he's there. And I don't see why we should lose him. And that's a shame. And, uh, and the same thing with these plants. I mean, if they're there, leave them there. Hopefully do something with them. And I think these grapes uh, are a good example, based on the wines they gave, why we don't want to lose them. And I'll finish this by saying that one of my very favorite white grapes in Italy is... Um, Picolit, which gives you a very lovely sweet wine. There's a lot of bad picolit wines made uh, for a lot of reasons, unfortunately. But when it's good and when it's well made, it's just a fantastic sweet wine. A bit more delicate than Sauternes. Uh, lovely acacia honey sort of flavor, peach and apricot. And it goes very well with gorgonzola, with apple tarts. And it's a lovely, a lovely wine that will match even to, to other foods as well. You can have it with scallops and pumpkin soup. So one of the things that sort of struck me more recently is that it seems that some of the grape varieties that are indigenous to Italy have really taken off lately, not just because there's a kind of multicultural generation that's more open to new experiences uh, as a market that may be looking for indigenous things, and not just because of the passion of the local growers who are keeping things in, in the ground, but also uh, because of the advent of temperature control and stainless steel. 
because it seems like a number of those grapes that were uh, almost gone gave high sugars and that may have been hard to consistently ferment dry before there was stainless steel and temperature control. So when I look at something like Ruque, it seems like there's a gigantic renaissance in Ruque or a grape variety like Pella Verga. It seems like there's a gigantic renaissance in Pella Verga. And in both cases, they develop high sugars very quickly. And I think that uh, sometimes those wines would have been sweet or, uh, you know, had uh, stuck ferments. And Absolutely. No, and that same thing with Nebbiolo, right? Nebbiolo up until the you know early 1900s was often sweet and fizzy. And Schipettino, uh, they say the name of Schipettino derives not from the fact that the berries are crunchy and they sort of explode in your mouth, but it's the bottles that were breaking because they were stuck ferments. And, uh, you know, Fraser, Fraser, another one. If you talk to Conterno, Aldo Conterno, he'll tell you that, you know, um, he used to hate walking down into the cellar when he was younger because it would be full of broken glass from the pop bottles. No, definitely that's true. There's many, many reasons why the native grapes of Italy and of other countries have disappeared over the years. Certainly the single most important thing is the times have changed. And what is cool today was not cool, you know, 200 years ago. 200 years ago, people needed to make wine as, an, uh, as a source of calories. And so what they wanted was... Um, Lots of wine, and they didn't really care how good it was necessarily. It was all good to them, but they needed quantities rather than quality. So any grape variety that didn't produce much or any grape variety that was sickly, any grape variety that was hard to grow, you know, uh, fatally was was phased out in favor of other ones that, that grew well. This is why we have so much Trebbiano Toscano in Italy, because the thing grows like a weed. And certainly uh, the more uh, the more sophisticated analysis is the one that you just did it's not just a matter of, of volume or of quality it's also a matter of of what was happening in relation to your technological ability at the time and certainly any grape that built up a lot of sugar and and, and gave stuck ferments that would have been another reason to get rid of and another reason to um to to change to something else so there are many many reasons why these native grapes have had trouble a lot of them uh, suffer from asynchronous maturation. That means that within the same berry, you have at the, the same time, moment in the year, you have grapes that are fully ripe, berries that are not ripe, berries that are partially ripe. That's a nightmare, right? Because you got to go take those out manually. It's a lot of very labor intensive, very cost ineffective. So there's lots of reasons why these grapes have disappeared. And, you know, a lot of times it's even for, for a simpler reason. And that is a lot of them look alike and they get confused, but they're not the same grape. And um, this is actually a, a life-turning lesson for me. One of the grapes that in Italy has always been considered, uh, you know, so-so or lousy as Trebbiano Abruzzese. That tells you what trouble the poor grape has when people can't even get its name right, because most people just refer to it as Trebbiano d'Abruzzo. Well, actually, Trebbiano d'Abruzzo is the name of the wine and Trebbiano Abruzzese is the name of the grape. Now, that has always been viewed as a poor workhorse sort of grape, you know, a Trebbiano-ish grape, which in itself is, is no great compliment. But in reality, if you stop to think about it, that doesn't make much sense, because one of Italy's three or four greatest wines is the Trebbiano de Bruzzo by Valentini. So it always struck me as funny as, why would a guy using a grape that everybody says is lousy be able to make a truly stellar wine. Now, the, the thinking then is obvious. Everybody thinks the same thing. It's because Valentini is so gifted and so bright and so uniquely talented that he can get something that other people That's true, but if you actually sit down and talk to the guy, you realize that he tells you he's got a very specific grape that has actually been looked at by government officials to replicate, to, to plant it elsewhere, to propagate it. And then you realize in the other vineyards, uh, they actually don't have Trebbiano Bruzzese, but a lot of them have Trebbiano Toscano, another variety still, like Bombino Bianco and Mostosa. And this is because the grapes all look fairly alike. 
and in perfectly good faith, nurseries and wineries made the mistake. And when they had to replant their vineyards, they replanted not with the authentic Trebbiano Abruzzese, but they planted with Bombino Bianco and Mustosa. And therefore, these vineyards have mixed varieties in there, which is never a great thing, because each one of these wants different soils, different exposures, different rootstocks, and they need to probably be harvested at different times. So a lot of people making Trebbiano Abruzzo wines are harvesting their grapes all together, but in reality, they're different grapes, and the end result is going to be poor. Uh, while if you have people like uh, like Valentini, like Tiberio, uh, that have uh, pure Trebbiano Abruzzese in their vineyards, you make uh, fantastic Chablis-like wines that age forever. And I think there's a lesson in that example as well of how much we still have to learn about native grapes. With Nebbiolo, we're way ahead of the curve. We know a lot more. We're now talking about sites, specific crews. We know about the different biotypes. None of this is true with any other grape in Italy except possibly Sangiovese, but we don't know anything about the other ones. And we need to, we need to study them. Remember always that in Italy, uh, Italy's most abundantly cultivated grape variety is Sangiovese, and it really only became the object of scientific study in the 60s, of in-depth studies in the 1980s, and that's Sangiovese. So imagine all the other ones. So we've got a lot of work to do in Italy still on our grape varieties and our wines. One of the things you mentioned is that trend can affect what's cool and what's not cool at any given time, and it has an effect in the market and it has an effect in the ground in terms of what's planted there. And it seems like over the period of time that you were writing that book, which was a, over a decade, about 13 years, that Etna Rosso just like became a huge hit. And mm. uh, now it's like a dominant driving factor for a lot of restaurant lists in New York, and I would imagine other places as well. So what's it been like to to see the great renaissance of the South. We talked about the Alto Pimonte, which has also had a renaissance in the North, seemingly, in both the market and in the production. But down in the South, there's something really happened. What's that been like observing that? Well, very much so. And uh, Etna Rosso right now is Italy's hottest wine. People just can't get enough of it. I know of importers who are thinking of taking on a second domain because the one they have, they just can't sell enough of and they can't get any more wine. So yeah, it's an amazing success story. Certainly the biggest... Italian wine success story of the last 30 or 40 years. And I think, um, I think if, you know, you know, there's a saying, there's an accident waiting to happen. I think that was a good thing waiting to happen because everything was in place for the thing to explode. First of all, one, if not two, very good grapes, Nerello Mascalese and Nerello Capuccio, both of which have um, a certain nobility to them. Neither one is perfect. You know, Nerello Mascalese is low in color, but gives lovely, lovely tannins. Capuccio has lots of color, but no tannins. And so you unite them, you blend them together, and you get, you know, the sum is better than the single parts. Now, you combine these grapes, great grapes, with a unique terroir, volcanic Etna, cool microclimate, something that is not common anywhere else. And the combination of these two factors has given us a truly, truly amazing red wine that is even better, uh, very site-specific. So on Etna, much like in Piedmont and Burgundy, it's very, very apparent where the grapes come from because there's a big difference in what they call contrade there, which would be the crews um, from those lying even 100 meters up. They, the wines are, are radically, radically different. Certainly a wine from Feudo di Mezzo, that's one crew. It's fleshy, ripe, rich. Uh, a wine from Calderara Sottana is much more mineral, much more sleek, more Burgundian, if you will, or maybe, shall we say, old-world Pinot Noir as opposed to a newer-world Pinot Noir, which would be the Feudo di Mezzo. I think that um, 
interestingly, there was always great wine that could be made there, but the just the elements were in place for that to be recognized. And the reason why I say this is because um, my family, actually, on my father's side, is originally Sicilian. Dagara is a very Sicilian name. And uh, my grandfather, at uh, our Sunday dinners, often came with a bottle of wine. And, you know, it got to the point where I'd really given up hope on my grandfather's, uh, you know, wine knowledge, because every wine he brought just was horrible. I I was trying to find excuses not to go to Sunday lunch anymore. Because since they knew I liked wine, of course, I had to drink them all or taste them all. I had to say what I thought, and it was unbearable. <laughs> and I love my grandfather, but he was just a pain, you know? I just couldn't stand it. And uh, so I found all sorts of reasons to go to soccer games or exams coming up. To make a long story short, the guy comes, comes home one day with what he called vino nero, black wine. And I'll tell you, it's one of the greatest wines I've ever had from a you know non-labeled wine bottle from a producer. It was basically a farmer's wine that had been put into a big demijohn, and it was from the Etna. It was from the area of Randazzo. And it's interesting, because Randazzo now is one of the hotbeds of Etna Rosso production. And I've always thought, I've always thought back at that time, this was back in the 80s that I, tra- I drank that wine. I'm, I'm always wondering whose vineyards those are now, because my grandfather got this got this vino nero made by a farmer in Randazzo. The thing was absolutely beautiful. It was fleshy. It was mineral. It was long. It was one of the greatest, really, I repeat, red wines I ever had from an unknown producer. And I'm sure those vineyards now belong to an estate that we all know. I, I just don't know which one it is, but I'd love to find out because it's part of my memories. It's part of my childhood. And I'd love to know which estate is now uh, farming those vineyards that gave that amazing wine I had maybe back in 1985 or 1986 when uh, Rosso really wasn't anywhere near on the map. So something that's somewhat interesting about Italy when you really look at global wine production and something that's pretty common in Italy, but you might not see much in the New World or even in a lot of other places in Europe, would be just the tendency to dry grapes and make wine out of it in terms of not necessarily a sweet wine. could be a dry table wine with dried grapes. And I guess that's a historical practice, but I was wondering if you would notice anything that had to do with the kind of grapes or the kind of place or the kind of use that has kept that tradition alive for really so long. That's a, that's a really fascinating topic and one that could have a whole book devoted to it because uh, the technique of air drying is remarkably complex, very historical, and a technique that we still don't know everything about. Uh, certainly... In some parts of Italy, air-drying grapes were, was a necessity because red grapes would not ripen in that weather. It's not by chance that the major areas of air-drying in Italy to make dry red wines are Veneto and Friuli. In Friuli, it rains, and it's cold in many parts of the, of the, of the region. And so, you know, to make red wine in areas such as the Gravel, Friuli, where it rains and where it's cold, it's a major undertaking. So air drying has, has logic. This is also true of the Veneto Valpolicella's area, where being north, uh, you know, in cold weather was more common than it is today. Grapes also needed a chance to ripen. Uh, having said that, there's the one difference is that in Veneto, uh, the ancient Romans had set up shop, and uh, Romans liked air dried wines. They air dried everything. And they made sweet wines that way usually, but they also made dry wines uh, by accident probably. And so that 
you know, the Veneto area, Valpolicella area, which was already back in Latin times, considered to be a hotbed of, of great wine. In fact, Valpolicella in Latin is polischellae, which means many cellars, because it was an area full of people making wine. And, you know, the Romans liked to air dry things. So the air drying is not just a necessity because of the weather there, but also a, a way of life, a tradition. In the South, air drying is also easy because, in fact, air drying begins already on the vine. So uh, to make an air dried wine, sweet or dry, was just going where nature had already taken you one step further. So, you know, you you end up making air dried wines in Italy South, even despite yourself, because they're going to start shriveling on the, on the vine, the grapes. So what's uh, looking ahead? Next 10 years for Italian wine? What's the prognosis from... I think it's going to be good. People in Italy are more and more aware, the politicians especially, of how important wine is for the country. It really is one of the country's 10 most important industries. There's uh, tens and tens and tens of thousands of people working in wine in Italy. Uh, Families, entire families. Uh, It's very much a family-run business in Italy. And so it's never going to disappear. It's always going to be helped. People are always going to be looking out for it. It's part of Italy's tradition to drink wine. People start when they're young, so they have a healthy relationship with it for the most part. And I think it's always going to be, uh, things are always going to be looking up for Italian wine. I think they'll also be looking up because people are becoming more cognizant of the wealth of different grape varieties they have. Uh, The next step is to figure out how these different grape varieties express themselves in different terroirs, what to do to put them in a position where they can express themselves uh, better and better. And I think that... uh, you know, if we'd done this talk uh, 20 years ago, we probably wouldn't have talked about Narello Mascalese at all. We probably wouldn't have talked about Pecorino at all. We wouldn't have known the first thing about Trebbiano Brusese. We wouldn't have known the stuff about the Pico Tenor we talked earlier. Even 10 years ago, it might have been hard to talk about grapes such as Nero di Troia. And so uh, it's just exciting. It's just exciting. I think over the next 10, 20, 30 years, we're going to characterize our territories better. We're going to do more cruise systems, not necessarily to say one is better than the other, but just to classify what the characteristics are of the grapes and the wines made and grown and made in each area. And I think some other wines will become popular. My hope, of course, is the wines like Vernaccia di Oristano will bounce back because they're lovely and it's a shame to see them on a downswing. And I have nothing but uh, positives for Italy's wine. The country has its problems. So Italy's wine problems are going to be you know, a reflection of the country's problems. And we've got to get our fiscal uh, situation in order. We've got to be productive. We've got to work hard, strike less. <laughs> and uh, and all that will translate into better and better wines. The country's amazing. Italy's not a rich country. It's, uh, it's, you know, 40% of it is mountains. 30% of it is hills leading up to those mountains. Doesn't have a whole lot of natural resources. We don't have oil. We don't have uranium. Uh, so really, Italy has always lived off the creativity of its people, the hard work of its people. It's been successful for thousands and thousands of years, and so I have no doubt uh, the country will be successful for thousands more. And therefore, I think that Italian wine and the wine scene in Italy is, has got nowhere to go but up, will continue to improve, and will continue to be very, very interesting. Ian Daggett is the scientific advisor for Vinitaly, and he's also the author of The Native Wine Grapes of Italy, as well as being an author of articles on numerous wine topics for both Venice and Decanter. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Ian Daggett of The Native Wine Grapes of Italy. 
All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.